Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome aboard to another Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, joined in the cockpit as usual by Ben Beldanza. Hey, Ben. Hey, Chris. Hope you and all of our listeners had a good week. I'm ready to take on another week of airline news, so let's get to it. Well, the top line is more earnings reports to review from U.S. carriers, including Southwest Frontier and JetBlue. Uh, ben, what do you think? Well, even in the low-cost industry, which these three carriers all participate in, we're still yet to get back to profitability. And so the industry is excited about a good summer, as we've said for multiple weeks on the show now, but the last quarter didn't quite get there in terms of volumes and rates. So all three carriers talked about profit in the second half of the year, talked very positively about the outlook for things, but downplayed current quarter weakness in volumes, rates, operational integrity, and things. So, you know, Southwest is huge, Frontier and JetBlue smaller, but all of them had very similar tonality around, we're just around the corner from being profitable, but we're not there yet. Yeah, I think all three of them missed estimates just a bit. I'll stand corrected if, if that statement's wrong. I also was somewhat amused by Southwest talking so strongly about their hiring. I try to think, when, when was the last time an airline was bragging to Wall Street about their hiring practices? But I think most of the carriers are, are addressing that, so it wasn't just Southwest, but they seem to kind of lean in on their ramp up of staff to try to allay concerns about the summer operations. And they were also pretty bullish on business travel. They, you know, I, I think even with missing estimates Southwest got a buy from a lot of analysts and their stock took a nice bump. So um, they were driving the conversation in the way they wanted. Ben, did you see the item about how Frontier, though, was has driven in this past quarter more revenue from ancillaries than from ticket prices? I thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting. So I decided to take a little deeper look and some of it is because their ancillary revenue has taken a tick up, but some of it is because of their base fares have come down as well. And we used to joke when I was at Spirit, you know, hey, there are some flights where we should be 100% ancillary revenue because we'll just give the tickets away for free, right, to fill the airplane. So I think they've had to use real low pricing to get their planes full They've not had to change the pricing on things like bags, seat assignments, and other things they charge for. So I don't think this tip the scale for them suggests that long-term they want their ancillary to be ahead of their base fares. I think the base fares were just so low in the last quarter that the math worked out that way. So airfare isn't always going to be the milk and eggs of... Ultra low cost carriers. 
<laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. Going back to your Southwest comment too on business, I think it's important to note that Southwest thinks of business travel at least a little bit differently than the American Uniteds and Deltas do. When American United and Delta talk about business travel, they're mostly talking about corporate travel, meaning big companies that often contract with a travel agent or maybe have travel professionals within the company that book the tickets, the company's paying for the tickets, and the travel they track through those programs they think of as their business revenue. Southwest has not been a huge player in that kind of game, but because of their high frequency in and among lots of big cities, their reliable network and such, they've been a big carrier of smaller business travel. And smaller business travel isn't always under a contract the way a big company might be with an American or Delta, but they are traveling for business and they tend to have features of their travel that look a little bit like a leisure traveler, meaning they're somewhat price sensitive or more price sensitive, but a little like a business traveler. They still like to have flights at certain times or are traveling in a way that they can't always change too easily. And so Southwest talking about business coming back stronger, I think does make sense for them because I think small businesses are what drives a lot of the economy. So it wouldn't surprise me if their view of business travel comes back a lot faster than sort of the corporate business of the big guys. One last comment about earnings last week uh, for these carriers. And Ben, I'm not going to ask you to respond because I know you can't, but I thought that both Frontier and JetBlue were somewhat muted as it related to the Spirit transaction or their perspectives on the Spirit transaction. And to me, that means there's a lot going on behind the scenes because when people stop talking, that means people are putting paper to pencil or do whatever kinds of uh, activities to move along negotiations, whatever that might mean. But um, I thought that they were both somewhat restrained in, in their commentary about the prospects for the deal. So anyway, we'll just leave that there. And then looking south to Latin America, your reaction, Ben, to the news that Avianca is embracing the ultra-low-cost carrier model and acquiring Viva Air Colombia within weeks of emerging from Chapter 11 restructuring. We've had both Viva Chairman Declan Ryan and Viva Air CEO Felix Antello as guests on the show, so this deal certainly has some interest from at least the two of us. No, absolutely. And I think it's fascinating. So Colombia is a country of, you know, 45, 50 million people with a lot of cities, a lot of big cities, very mountainous, so there's not a rail network that connects every place, like in Europe, for example. So domestic air travel is a big deal there. And obviously, they have affinity with you know, regions close to them, Peru, Central America, Venezuela, and of course, the U.S. as well. And Viva and Avianca combined are most of Colombia. There's a couple other airlines there. Copa owns a little airline there and such. So it's interesting. You know, there's there's all kinds of talks related to the 
topic I can't discuss around what can be approved by the Justice Department. And here you have the biggest airline, Avianca, merging with the biggest low-cost carrier in the same country. I think that's kind of amazing, actually. But I think it shows just how much Avianca has embraced the low-cost carrier idea that that's what they need to be to long-term be sustainable and strong. And I also think it suggests that there's maybe a little struggle with Viva now that Avianca, through bankruptcy, got themselves a little more efficient. Maybe they're what they saw as their native growth opportunity against what at one point was a lumbering, struggling Avianca Now they said, well, that's not exactly the world now, so maybe better to join them rather than try to beat them. We've talked a bit on this podcast about how transactions and consolidation sometimes end up centered around personalities and egos uh, as much as the financial sometimes. So I'm just hoping that in this case, the acquiring airline, and this is not a statement on the Avianca folks, but that they pay some respect and take some lessons from Declan Ryan and Felix Antello and what they're accomplishing at Viva versus trying to impose something on them as the acquiring company. So um, there's some smart people involved in this. And so hopefully the, the knowledge, assuming it gets approved, will flow both ways and Avianca will get some of the intellectual power that's uh, residing in Viva. I agree. And, uh, For those interested in this, Chris, I've reached out to a board member at Avianca who's a friend of mine who I know who's agreed to come on the show. So in a couple of weeks, maybe we can get someone from the inside of Avianca talking to us about this deal too. Very cool. Listeners, a reminder, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-plus year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Ben, finally, are you paying attention to what's going on at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport? Um, Kind of some crazy stuff. Two weeks ago, Grand Handlers went on strike. That's not so crazy, but it was really a disruption to airport operations. The airport was already short-staffed from cutbacks during the pandemic that haven't been replaced. The news coverage is using words like chaos and pandemonium. And now airport officials have gone so far as to ask travelers not to show up for flights, ask airlines to cancel flights, and also ask airlines to close flights this coming week or so to not take any more bookings. I was absolutely amazed at this, Chris. I did see this. And, you know, strikes in European airports are never fun, but they're not the most uncommon thing. Obviously, there's different labor laws in Europe than in the U.S. In the U.S., we have the Railway Labor Act, which governs the labor um, management relationship in airlines in the U.S., That makes it difficult to get to a point of striking. A lot has to happen, a lot of negotiation, arbitration, you know, lots of time before anything can get to a strike. Whereas in Europe, they don't have that. And so even single day strikes and things like that aren't 
the least common thing among European airlines. But for an airport to go so far as to say, don't fly here, don't book more passengers here. I mean, airports make all their money from flights coming in and out, airplanes landing, paying them, using their facility, customers going there through their facility, buying concessions, parking. You know, it's like they're saying it's got to be so bad there that the airport saying the only way to get out of this is to just, you know, put a complete lockdown on things for a while. That's got to be terrible for um, the Netherlands economy and for tourism and business going in and out of that very important airport. It's also a real important connecting airport. So I'm guessing there's a lot of people who are going to be disappointed about their ability to connect into places further on into Africa, Asia, other parts of Europe that Amsterdam does a good job serving. So I was shocked that an airport would take this strong of a view, Chris. And what that suggests to me is chaos and pandemonium must be the lightest words they can use. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's like there's some little corner shop that puts a hand tape sign on the door saying, we'll be back in two hours, you know, an emergency or something. But it, it just seems very at odds with the efficiency and the kind of the world-class position that Schiphol's played for so many years. And, you know, we've talked about too, these major European hubs compete ferociously with each other and they're in somewhat uh, close geographic proximity to each other too. So um, this is a competitive disadvantage that they might be dealing with for longer than these few weeks. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, And the interesting to me also, Chris, is whether or not other airports, both in Europe and maybe around the world, will start saying, hey, we need to be part of fixing the operational challenges that lack of staff or airline disruptions and things are causing. Yep, I agree. Speaking of chaos and pandemonium, we're going to be talking to our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, in just a moment, so don't go away. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're once again welcome to have Chris Sloan, our roving correspondent here with us. Chris took an amazing trip to Alaska, lots of airline stories to tell us. So welcome back to the show, Chris. You know, we went for a spring break a month ago, so I finally, I think we've finally thawed out. So glad to be here. Well, why don't you start by telling us why flying is different in Alaska than the lower 48? What's different about it? This is my third time there, and every time it is different. I mean, I think the thing that makes it the most different is you have to get a sense of just how massive this state is. I mean, it's two times the size of Texas. So if you stretch Alaska out, you know, you have the Panhandle, the Aleutian Islands, and then the real core of the state. If you stretch all that out, 
it would extend from South Carolina to California coast and from the Canadian border to the Texas border. So if it gives you a sense of just the massiveness of how huge it is and, you know, like another stat I found was like, you know, it's like, what do you think the longest route and the distance is within a single state? How long would that road be? Any ideas? A hint, it's in the largest state physically. Well, my favorite road sign in the U.S., and I'm sure I'm going to get the numbers wrong or something, is when you're driving on I-10 into Texas from Louisiana, you see a sign that says something like Beaumont 19, El Paso 853 or something like that. (laughs) And so I would think like 900 or 1,000 miles is the longest you could drive in Texas. So if Alaska is twice the size, I'd say 2,000 miles is the road in Alaska. Well, on the first part, I have to say it's like on the prices, right? If you're within $100 of the asking price, you win both cars. So I think you just won two cars, uh, Ben, because you're right. <laughs> it's, uh, it is El Paso to Beaumont, and it's about 865 miles. Now, the second point, the longest road within uh, interstate, interstate is in Alaska, and it's the Dalton Highway, which is not all open to the public. That's where the ice road truckers, you know, goes from Fairbanks up to the North Slope. That's 1,100 miles. So you get a sense of just how this, how ma- not only massive the state is, but how little infrastructure there is. And so flying there is not just a matter of, is there an alternative? For many areas, it is a lifeline. There are no surface roads to many, many communities, even though, you know, 80%, 70% of the population lives in Anchorage. You know, people are spread out everywhere in the bush. And so it's their lifeline for supplies, for travel, and even significant cities like Barrow, home of the northernmost city in North America and the northernmost Mexican restaurant in the world. But there are no roads uh, to get to Barrow. And there's 6,000 people that live there. And aviation is absolutely a lifeline to the state of Alaska. It's not just a luxury, it's a necessity. And so, in, you know, um, so it's a very, very different place. And of course, the weather conditions, I mean, Fairbanks as a city itself has the highest temperature fluctuations of any major city in the world. I mean, in the summer, it can be 90 degrees, but minus 40, minus 50, not wind chill, but air temperature is not abnormal. So the state is just absolutely uh, massive and obviously the weather conditions. So in every respect, it's completely different uh, than uh, the lower 48. So having said all that, Chris, give us the lay of the land or the lay of the airspace, if you will, of aviation in Alaska. It's kind of soup to nuts. You're probably, you probably saw all kinds of things. It's a real mix. I mean, it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's like, let's do the time warp again. I mean, in the, in, 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 there are things you don't see anywhere else in the lower 48. You see DC-6s and DC-3s and C-46s still flying on a daily basis cargo into these remote locations things you don't see. You don't see any Southwests. You don't see any low-cost carriers. You don't see very many regional jets. Only Alaska operates limited service with Horizon, which is relatively new. So, you know, we're used to seeing ERJs lined up everywhere. You don't see that there. And, uh, you know, and you go into Anchorage and, you know, you see it's the 747 cap of the world, but they're all it's all cargo. So it's like there's a number of things that are very, very unique that you see and you don't see you know, and it completely differs depending on what season of the year it is. I mean, in the summer, you see American United. American United are only in the summer. You know, international flights, the only international flights 
even though you can't, you're closer to Russia and you can see Russia from here, um, with apologies to Sarah Palin, you only see Condor and Icelandic internationally, where in the old days, you know, you used to have these trans uh, stopovers for uh, passenger airlines. You would never know the 747 is a, uh, a dying platform because they're all it, they are all over Anchorage and in particular and for cargo. So it's a massive cargo hub, and of course, uh, with the Russian flying restrictions, there's uh, you know talk of additional passenger service throughout most of the state. I mean, there's really Alaska Airlines at, for mainline, and then you have another company called Raven, which was formerly Aero, which is goes into the smaller uh, communities. So you go into these airports that literally are two room shacks and yet they have mainline jet service from Alaska. There's not, you know, a, a turboprop from horizon there, or there are very, very small Raven aircraft um, flying dash eights, but you're not talking about a 30 minute flight. You're talking maybe three to four hours in a dash eight where you're flying 12 or 1300 miles. So there's a lot of unusual circumstances that make it look very different. I'll tell you one funny story about it. Um, I saw a documentary on ESPN about a football team called uh, Up and Barrow, and this team did not exist. And it's a high school team on the North Slope where there's a lot of money, but it's you know it's it's the most harsh conditions you can imagine. And uh, they had never played football. And three years uh, after three years of building, they actually recruited coaches and players in the lower 48 to come live in Barrow, and they created a they went in 2007 from never playing the game to winning the series to state championship, but they're like a college team because their nearest opponents are seven or 800 miles away. So when the high school, some high schools are so remote that when they want to go play another team for football, uh, basketball, they literally charter jets and planes and they have, you know, you have, they have car washes for, you know, here we have it, you know, to, Oh, let's, let's do a cool logo at the stadium there. It's like our opponent this Friday is 800 miles away in Juneau. So, you're talking like high school teams that actually act as college teams and that where, where else does that exist? And, uh, and I think there's just so many unusual missions like that. There's a lot of antidotes of what makes flying here different really from any other place in the world. Well, Chris, you took a 10 minute flight on a seven thirty seven. You know, as I looked back into the, my records of that, I was like, I was like, was it really 10 minutes or did it just feel like 10 minutes? Well, the funny thing about the flight was, is this was in 1995. This is a seasonal flight. And the flight duration was from Gustavus Airport to Juneau on a 737. The absolute, as the crow flies flying distance, to, you know, obviously you can be routed depending on weather, but as crow flies, it's 37 miles. Now, because of the very precarious approach into Juneau, you know, and the way you have to route, it was actually... I think it was, yeah, it was actually blocks. I was just checking what it's been running for the last year on the average. It's, it's actually 32 minutes for 37 miles. There is a ferry, but in many cases, the ferries take hours. So a 737 mainline flight, I don't know if there's a shorter mainline flight that exists at 37 miles. I do remember we were, we were always flying between mountains and looking up at them. So it felt like 10 minutes, but that's kind of a crazy, right? Isn't that kind of a crazy 36 miles, 32 hours? That's pretty nuts, I think. Sounds like uh, traffic in Washington, D.C. <laughs> JetBlue put out an April Fool's note this year saying that they were going to add flights from LaGuardia to JFK so you could avoid the Van Wyck Expressway. <laughs> did they do at least one? <laughs> no, I don't think they even did one. 
So, Chris, <laughs> was there a flight you took this trip or on a previous Alaska visit that you swore you'd never do again? Now, that's a great question. I can tell you the flight my wife would swear. There's two of them she would swear to never do it again. I will never swear off anything. This time we went on, um, we decided to uh, fly basically in Denali and fly a, uh, in a caravan in, with Talkeetan Air Services, which is a lot like you would imagine. Remember Northern Exposure, Maggie, who was the, the female pilot? Yep. Yep. So she, she's like, she was amazing. She's like been doing this 25 years and she, she made a joke. She's like, yeah, just call me Maggie because everybody thinks I'm like the Northern Exposure pilot. But she was a very accomplished pilot. And we flew uh, this caravan from Talkeetna on about a 25-minute flight uh, over Denali Park and then through and around Mount McKinley, you know, the tallest mountain in North America, and then landed on a glacier. And there was actually three planes out there landing on a glacier, which is a it's kind of like landing on a, it's, it makes seaplanes look uh, pretty rough. I mean, it was like, uh, it was like landing on a construction zone, but it was awesome. I mean, you're, you're actually landing at a much higher altitude than you took off uh, from. So, you know, I mean, that's an amazing photo. It's an amazing opportunity. It's, you know, remarkable uh, to be out there, but the returning, the mountain wave and turbulence that, um, uh, that we uh, experience, you know, she's just sitting there munching on Doritos and, you know, drinking her water. Like, she's like, yeah, it might get a little bumpy. That's normal. I think it was a bad sign. We got in the plane and in the seat back pocket, there was like three to four barf bags per <laughs> uh, seat back pocket. Uh, we, we kissed the ground. We landed there. Of course I do it again. My wife and son were like, never again. So Chris, we have a lot of aviation people and a lot of aviation geeks who listen to the show you probably topped the list there by the way but um is that a compliment yes it is of course so if someone wants to go to alaska and have an aviation geek out there what do you absolutely suggest they do well there is a bucket list of geeks um you know probably the one that's most well known is the uh, the famous milk run that runs from Seattle to Anchorage. That route goes, you know, Seattle, Ketchikan, Sitka, Juneau, Anchorage. And it's a 737, you know, different times it's been combis, which is another unique thing. You know, Alaska used to operate. Now they're all, they have all freighters, but these were uh, passenger cargo configurations. Pretty much the, uh, I don't know what it says about Alaska, but the fish all rode in the front part of the plane. The people rode in the back on the combi. So <laughs> the premium passengers were the salmon. That shows you where their priorities are. They probably pay more. So. <laughs> they do. I think they're all MVP 75 golds, uh, you know, at the point. They must have a frequent fryer plan. Oh, man. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. Wow. It's a tough room. You know this famous story. They had a plane painted, the one we flew, uh, called the Salmon 30 Salmon, as long, as long as we're on bad puns, but that was a legitimate plane. It was an entire salmon painted livery on the inside of the plane and on the overhead bins. So it's like king crab and, and meat. And, uh, you know, so, but anyway, back to that flight, it was really, uh, it was, it's really interesting because it can take up to eight or nine hours just to get to Juneau because most pe- the people, the geeks want to do as many stops as possible. And then it's another two hours to fly to, uh, to fly from Juneau to Anchorage. And what's really interesting is you're flying up the panhandle from Seattle and, uh, I think the most memorable part is you're flying into Juneau. And Juneau, for those who talk about the world's scariest and most dangerous airports, are the ones that are the most exciting from an Aggie perspective. We prefer the words exciting and thrilling to scary and turbulent. 
is the approach into Juno, which is like, because you're making a straight shot between a very, very narrow passage of mountains into a runway that's, you know, fairly, it's, you know, I think six or 7,000 feet long, um, you're literally dropped out of the sky. But the amount of turbulence and mountain wave is like, it's better than anything you'd ever get at like Six Flags uh, Magic Mountain. People intentionally want to, you know, seek that out. But again, it reminds you of just the quality and the precision level of the pilots and the training. And there's a lot of technology actually that Alaska has pioneered. And, um, and I mean, we can get really wonky, but to deal with flying in these really uh, treacherous conditions where they're totally threading needle with mainline equipment. You know, you've heard this about St. Bart's and some of those others, but they're doing this, you know, with 737s in very, very strong conditions. So the trip itself is just one. It's like the island hopper from Hawaii to, uh, you know, to Guam. People want to make as many stops and, and, and there's a lot of interesting traffic and fish being loaded on the plane. So the milk run is one. The one I did that I that I loved um, that was so weird was um, we flew up to Barrow, which that's a place my wife would never go back to, but it is the northernmost city in North America. But uh, we flew on the 4th of July and I wanted to go see the football team play. So the flight at that point flew from Fairbanks to Prudhoe Bay and Prudhoe Bay Dead Horse is the, the core of operations for the oil rig workers on the North Shore, the North Slope. And it's really, that's a very interesting position because those folks commute from around America and, you know, they may be off two weeks and then on two weeks or off one, two weeks and then on uh, three weeks. And if you're a, if you're like working in the kitchen, you make six figures. I mean, back in, especially back when we went in 2011, the oil, when the oil boom was fully, you know, bl blowing up, I mean, it is a, it's very, very harsh. You make a lot of money, but you're on basically working 18 hours a day. Um, it's also dry. Like there's no alcohol. So um, I remember being on that, we were flying up to, on the way to Bear, we're flying up to Dead Horse in Prudhoe Bay. And it's like, people are just like, it's kind of like last call at the bar, but it's like last call for three weeks. You know, you've got these guys who are, really going to be going into the bush and it's you know it's pretty rough up there and then you, you do a 20 minute turnaround and then it's the so they're pretty they're they're pretty depressed because they're going into a pretty bleak place i mean you cannot imagine how bleak it is there are no trees there are no vegetation it's 700 miles above the arctic circle and then the people getting on board are like they're the happiest people in the world because it's like it's like that flight to vegas like the flight attendants were it was like four bottles of Tito's on every single uh, tray table because they were celebrating that they were out of this place and going on vacation. And, and it's like the regulars, it was like there were so many regulars, they, the crew didn't even ask. I was marveling at it. It was like, they just, hey, Joe, four Tito's for you, three Jacks for you. Like the wild turkeys, they were just like taking care of them. And, and it was then a 30-minute hop over to Barrow, which again is only 67 miles away. And then you land in Barrow and uh, as you... Uh, exit the plane, there's polar bear tracks painted on the, uh, that, that's where you follow. By the way, uh, a, a custom of every Alaska airport is there's a, a, a stuffed taxidermy polar bear in a case in every terminal. That's, I think, an official FAA regulation. <laughs> um, but then you get off the plane and there's signs that says, watch for polar bears. And they're serious, like, you know, be aware of moose. And, uh, and then you go into the terminal in Barrow, and it's fascinating is that because, you know, we, uh, you had a guest on um, Gotham talking about ground services. You know, Alaska rotates in some of these remote stations, rotates employees in and out of their out of the terminals. And in places like Barrow and then formerly Prudhoe Bay, they actually have living facilities where they live above the terminal. So you may have Alaska employees who spend 
a week or three or four days. They're like firemen and they live in, actually live in the terminal and they rotate in and out of, you know, wherever their home base is, Anchorage and Fairbanks. So you're kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm not joking when we were, uh, when we were flying Alaska, trying to, you know, leaving Bear at one point, one of the, the local station people came down in their robe to help out because the, t- the uh, security was so backed up. And it was like, what, what's this guy doing in the robe? He's like, well, he's an employee, but, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. So he's, you know, he was getting ready to go to bed. So he's going to come down here and help. So it's like, it's very, it's really, uh, it's, I guess it would say it's really, really quirky, if that makes any sense. Hey, Chris, uh, before we let you go, one, one more last question. I want to switch gear a bit. The commercial market, what are your senses as the industry rebounds? Are there any opportunities, the impact on Russia overflight bans and things on Alaska airports? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. Alaska airline air itself has had almost a monopolistic operation north of the lower 48. You know, as I said, they do freight. They do flights that seem like EIS, essential, I mean, EAS, essential air service. Um, you know, and the, and the fares are very, very high. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, as I said, they, it, it almost feels, you know, like a, a monopoly. And, and even to the U.S., even on seasonal routes, I mean, Delta operates from Seattle. Dallas, uh, American puts, a, actually last summer, put a 787 to meet demand. But it really has been Alaska's market. And so there were competitors. There was an airline uh, geeks will remember called Ween and Mark Air. And these were really large uh, competitors uh, years ago in the Alaska market. But since then, it's really been theirs to own. In, in, um, and so there's a new entrant called Pacific Northern, which is runs under is going to run under the AOC of uh, Raven. And Raven is really the largest. They were called Era. They're the largest I would say truly branded commuter airline uh, up there. Um, and they serve a lot of the secondary, the small towns with dash eights and things, but they are now going, their, their business plan is to kind of emulate what Iceland air did, which is to create low cost services using 757s for now, because that's what they have to fly between say, to connect North America, the U S domestic market with Asia. So the idea is that you would, Basically, uh, they they've talked about Chicago, Orlando, um, markets like that. A stopover in Anchorage, and then it flies on to Kansai or Osaka or Tokyo, and uh, at a low cost, a true LCC unbundled product, but using a seven fifty seven. And of course, the the they they've talked about you know they they've already they purchased X. I think they have five now XA seven fifty sevens, which they view as a temporary aircraft, but the challenge, of course, is they, they've, they've targeted first the summer, now pushes to the fall for a start. But, you know, it may be a problem where, you know, Asia still hasn't necessarily opened up uh, or particularly Japan and some of the destinations they were, uh, which is the business model. So now they're going to find themselves kind of doing an, a the idea is to do like an LCC unbundled uh, com- competition with Alaska to try to break that monopoly. And there really has never been an LCC um, that I can think of um, up and up up there, so that's that that's the one that's grabbing the most attention. And Raven, their parent company, was only you know uh, literally shut down when the pandemic happened, declared bankruptcy, and laid everybody off. I mean, it was a complete and utter shutdown, which stranded you know. I mean, it was a the amount the impact cannot be overstated that, that had on these local communities that rely on that. 
So they uh, rebooted it and they're the ones behind it. Um, but that's probably the biggest shakeup commercially um, that seems to be coming. And Pacific Northern basically freely admits it says, we want to be the Iceland air of Alaska. Do you think that means, Chris, that they would, assuming they could ever launch the kind of service you're talking about, would offer sort of free one or two day stopovers the way Iceland Air does in Reykjavik? Yeah, that's exactly their plan. Is they is they want to offer they want to offer st- stopovers and, and 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 it's really kind of back to the future. Like you were asking about the you know Russian restrictions and the way you know Anchorage you know used to be deployed. You know, at one point, here's a fun uh, here's a fun qu- uh, question. Um, you know, I mean. It, for you guys. I mean, there was a flight that this was a perfect example that, that, uh, it was a passenger flight. It was short lived, but there was a flight that used to connect, um, Europe with Hawaii and it was a U.S. carrier and they, uh, ch- chose Anchorage because they, the, the, the planes did not have the distance to do that flight, but there was a stopover component. And that's kind of the inspiration for this. Do you guys have any idea what that was and who flew it? I have no idea. I'm going to guess like it was a Thomas Cook or someone like that. This is like stump the band. You don't want to phone a friend? And Chris? <laughs> I, I, I give up. You'd be the friend I'd phone, Chris. That's right. So, so. <laughs> this is not the kind of stuff that I remember when I was dating, when I'd give my wife the trivia, she was like, this is not the kind of stuff that in, that uh, that uh, impresses. I, I, uh, I, feel, I feel like we're like the movie Diner and we're taking the Baltimore Colts quiz here. <laughs> uh, Western Airlines used to fly Honolulu to uh, London via Anchorage. And so back in those days, you know, Anchorage had true connectivity to Japan and Asia because the aircraft had technical stopovers, but they did sell local traffic. And at this point, as I said, only Condor flies to Germany and Icelandic. I think they actually announced this week they weren't going to fly this summer, but they were flying because you know, if you live in Iceland and you need a warm getaway, why don't you? Why not go to Alaska? It makes perfect sense. But that was, by the way, a lot of what that was was flow from Europe. They were marketing, we're going to be able to flow traffic from Europe into Reykjavik and get so Europeans can go to Anchorage. But that's that's a big change is that they have a North International Terminal that's pretty much been shuttered, and they believe because of the technical restrictions and the range as this drags on, and then other market opportunities that they're going to be attract able to attract true international uh, traffic O&D without having to connect down to Seattle. But I've got a quiz for you. I, got, I do have a quiz for you about a, a unique commercial flight. So Go for it. There are only two passenger flights that connect the 49th state to the 50th state that do not touch the continental United States. Can you name who flies them, what those routes are? Well, I would, uh, my first guess is the obvious. I would think there's, Maybe an Anchorage Honolulu flight that either Hawaiian or Alaska flies. I can't imagine what a second passenger flight would be, though. Well, it's it's pretty much the same. It's a, it's a, it's a Anchorage to uh to uh, Maui to Maui. But it's and are those both flight. Hawaiian flights or are they Alaska flights? They're Alaska, and they're like seven to eight hour flights. And they literally you they 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 almost head just due south because people forget just how far west Alaska is, and um. They're curious. They're really interesting flights, but um, Alaska, because of uh, you know uh, issues, obviously you know with the capacity drawdowns uh, that are being widely discussed uh, or that are happening, 
Um, they've actually elected, these flights have operated for a long time, but these are going to be uh, removed until November. But they're, I can tell you, uh, I was surprised to hear that because anecdotally, um, it was, uh, those pl- flights were departing next to my gate and I have never seen like, um, it was minus 20 outside and people were in shorts and wearing Hawaiian shirts. Um, <laughs> and on the other side, there were Hawaiians getting off that looked like they, that, that uh, they look like they made the biggest mistakes of their life. I mean, they were just like, what are we walked into? So, um, and then I just have one little trivia question for, before I let you go, because you guys are, I think you, you're batting for 50. Let's go for a hundred. Can you name two of Alaska's busiest airports? Chris, you, you try this one. Based on movements. Well, I'm thinking one would be Ted Stevens airport in Anchorage, and then maybe some cargo focused operation. I don't know the second, but I think it would be not focused on passengers. Well, I think, you know, you're partially right. I mean, um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to preface this in saying within the season, because obviously because of the nature of this airport, it's not able to be open all year round, but it happens to be just uh, within a spitting distance of uh, Ted Stevens, which is the Lake Hood seaplane base. There you go. So, okay. Which, and this is a place, another place for uh, an av geek that you just much, you know, you must see. I mean, they average during season two or 300 flights a day. And it's only three uh, miles from downtown Anchorage. And it literally is a massive seaplane base, has its own control tower. And there is some traffic, uh, you know, for ski equipped airplanes. But uh, when you see it, it's like it's massive. It did actually have a gravel strip at a short for a short time. But um, you just have to see this place to believe it. Um, it is a, uh, they, have, they have like eight or 900 aircraft based, a uh, base at this, uh, at Lake Hood. So highly recommend that one. Well, Chris, some of us all live vicariously through you. So whether you're stranded in St. Lucia or you're having an experience in Alaska, we appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about it. I always enjoy, uh, doing so. And I, uh, you know, and I can't recommend uh, Alaska enough. And do not be afraid of the winter. The winter is actually, I think, uh, just an incredible time uh, to go there. Just to see the Northern Lights alone, just for that one reason, uh, head north to the future, as they say up there. Well, thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. We look forward to having you back soon. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from the archive.net the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Now it's time for listener questions. Please email us your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, our first question is from Cade in Maryland. Do you guys ever think about more efficient ways to get the area cleared just past the security checkpoint? I feel like exiting security is always a mad scramble to get all of your stuff together, and there's never ample room to regroup. I've wondered why airports don't have more tables and benches to help people gather their belongings in an organized manner. Chris, is this a good idea? 
Kate, you do raise some interesting points and points that have been percolating since TSA was created now 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. You know, a lot of airports weren't designed with what the TSA clearance structure is now. Many have had time to adapt. But I guess the bigger question is, you know, airports are designed to move people through quickly, but they're also designed to generate revenue. And so I don't think a lot of airports want you to kind of hang around and find it convenient to linger around the security checkpoint. They want you to get your stuff and get the hell out of there and go spend money at the concessions, get to your flight, whatever else. There are airports who do it better than others. There are some airports that don't have a lot of options as far as doing it better just because of the footprint of the terminals and and the like. But he, uh, Cade, you re- raise a good point. Um, we're going to have Sean Donahue, the CEO of DFW Airport on in a few weeks as a guest. Maybe this is something we could talk to him about with regard to how they think about this and how they maximize the space around security checkpoints. You know, Chris, that's a really good point you make. I also think that maybe the FAA could help with this a bit too, just in terms of consistency. I find, for example, that uh, in my travels just the last couple of weeks, when I go through security at Reagan National Airport, they specifically say, don't take anything out of your baggage except a laptop or larger. So I usually travel with an iPad and a Kindle and I leave them in my bag, right? And they go through. But then when I board the plane in Dallas, on the return flight, they say every piece of electronics must come out of your bag. And so I have to remove the iPad and the Kindle in Dallas. And either one is fine, right? I'm not complaining about what they asked me to do to stay safe, but... I understand why some people end up being frazzled at the other end of the belt, having to maybe remove things they didn't expect to remove or didn't at the last airport or something. Yeah, that's a good point. So consistency is always a good thing, although millions of passengers every day don't lend themselves to consistency either. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And Ben, this question is from Johannes from Germany. He's a math teacher, so listen up because I think he might be overthinking the math on his question just a bit. But it's important to address because that perception's out there. Ben and Chris, this autumn I want to go to the U.S. The best offer I got on a fare was from American Airlines. Unfortunately, the balance sheet of American doesn't look trustworthy at all. Therefore, I am highly skeptical of buying a ticket. Ben, I read an article of yours on Forbes.com regarding insolvency strategies of U.S. airlines and the domino effects. Probably it's too early to judge the situation. Are there any new developments regarding insolvency risks? I would appreciate an answer. Thanks in advance. Well, thank you, Johannes. And I think you'd be very safe buying a ticket on American Airlines. Now, you're looking at their balance sheet, which most customers don't. And my guess is you understand it well, being a math teacher too. So you're right. American has a lot of debt. And there are a number of people who say that if an airline is likely to need financial help uh, over the next year with revenues uncertain because of the return of business travel, American would be one that people are concerned about. That said, 
the bankruptcy laws in the U.S., which would be extreme, and I'm not even suggesting that American is headed there, wouldn't likely have them canceling flights or or not flying the flight that you're planning to to buy in the fall. Airlines in the U.S. have used bankruptcy to restructure in very efficient ways while continuing to fly and continuing to keep things moving. And whether American or any U.S. airline decides to use bankruptcy is still so far premature. I can't imagine anything happening before the fall. And it would only potentially happen if there's another big downslide or if business traffic really doesn't come back anymore, but nobody's even talking like that now. So I think you're sort of overthinking the issue again. Maybe what you need to do is look at the balance sheets of all the U.S. airlines, and then you'll see Americans isn't that far off. And if you're just looking at one thing, I can see why you might be a little nervous, but I wouldn't be nervous about this. Americans are a reliable carrier. They're going to be flying in the fall, and I hope you have a great flight. Ben, we've got to find our wine this week ripped from the pages of Carnival Cruise Line and Spirit Airlines. So we both touch this in various ways, me more than you, obviously. I'm going to stay objective or try to and let you decide. We're going to call these guests Mr. and Mrs. Jones. They flew from Rochester, New York to Fort Lauderdale to catch a Carnival Cruise Line flight last month. Spirit lost Mr. Jones's check baggage, which included Mr. Jones's insulin. They got to the ship in Miami thinking we would provide them with insulin for the six-day cruise, which we could not do. So they left the cruise terminal to find a drugstore to fill their prescription. By the time they got back to the ship, the ship had left. Their son, who was back in New York, was furious and started to post a series of tweets, calling us all kinds of names for, quote, stranding his elderly parents. For our part, Carnival put them up in a hotel for two nights at our cost, and then we put them on another cruise two days later, and they seemed very happy. That wasn't good enough for the son, who continued to demand a full refund, plus the hotel costs, plus the replacement cruise for free, plus airfare home. Now, remember, this starts with Spirit losing the luggage with the insulin. Is this a fine or a wine? Wow, this is this is a doozy, Chris. Okay, so let's break this down. Spirit lost the bag or didn't deliver the bag. And so they have culpability here. So in that sense, this is fine, right? You're going on a cruise, you check a bag, you want your baggage with you on the cruise. So my guess is they didn't not only not have the insulin, but they didn't have clothes and other things they would have wanted on the cruise too, I assume. The fact that the insulin was in the check bag is a big, big no-no. You never check medicines or things that are critical for your health in checked luggage because things can happen. That's why you carry on things, not only to bring uh, things to read or to do on the flight, but to make sure that that stuff is with you all the time. So in that sense, that's a wine that insulin never should have been in the bag. If the insulin had been in their check bag where it should have been, they probably still would have been somewhat upset, but would have gotten on the ship before it left, then be asking Carnival maybe for some for some clothes or some 
or get their baggage to them once it finally arrived in Fort Lauderdale at their first port of call or something. It seems to me what Carnival did, putting them up in a hotel at your cost and booking them on another cruise, was a very fair reaction to them missing the cruise. They didn't miss the cruise because of Carnival. They missed it because of Spirit not delivering their bag, but they really missed it because they put the insulin in the check bag. So this has big aspects of wine in it, but these are elderly people. They clearly don't travel that much. So I think what Carnival did for them was really pretty nice. I hope that Spirit got them their bag back pretty quickly. I'm shocked that they would think the cruise line would supply insulin to them. That's a really odd thing to me. It also seems odd that it would have taken them that long to go to a Walgreens. I mean, I lived in Fort Lauderdale. I know where Port Everglades is. I know where the Walgreens is, right? You could almost walk there and probably get there before the ship left. So there's just a lot about this that is odd. I feel bad for these people, but it seems to me what the sun is demanding is quite unrealistic. I like that. No, I, you know, he... He was doing more than whining, so let's just put it that way. But we did take care of them. But at the at the end of the story, the punctuation is on do not check medicine. How many times do we have to say that? But people still do it, especially in frequent flyers. But please don't check your medicine. That's right. Okay, shout out time to close down the show. And this is a good one, so please listen up. And if you have something to write with, please make notes. We'll put this on the show notes on our website as well. Victor Butler is the last living member of the Tuskegee Airmen. Later this month, he will be 100 years old. All he wants for his birthday is lots of birthday cards. So I'm asking our listeners to send him a card. I mailed mine yesterday. We'll put the address on the show notes on our website, like I said. But if you have something to jot down, you can send Victor Butler a birthday card, care of Gary Butler, P.O. Box 3523, Cranston, Rhode Island, 02910. It would be great if we could generate a nice swath of cards for this aviation legend from Airlines Confidential listeners. That's fantastic, Chris. Uh, what a wonderful thing. I will write my birthday card today. So will my wife and son. That's a fantastic shout out. I hope all of our listeners send Victor a, a birthday card. Congratulations, Victor. Well, my shout out is much more pedestrian, but my shout out is going to go to TA Connections. This is a company that listeners know of because they've been a sponsor of ours since the earliest days of this podcast. But their business, like the airlines, is going through change. So they've put a pause on their sponsorship. And while we hope they'll be back soon, we I just really want to thank them for their multiple years of support for getting this show off the ground. Most podcasts, as some of our listeners may know, last no more than 20 or 25 episodes because people just run out of content. We all work in an industry that just provides endless content, and that's great. Yes, thanks to TA Connections, and we're also closing out on a couple of potential new sponsors over the next few weeks and months, so we appreciate their support that they're going to be bringing to the show as well. With that... We're going to say goodbye. Everybody have a good week. And thanks again to Chris Sloan. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.